I'm sure you know that feeling after a workout of being more relaxed than you were before the workout. Like when you go into the sauna, if you were to measure your activation at the beginning of that session in the end, I bet it would be way lower. But that's a passive form of renewal. So for me, tennis is an incredibly relaxing thing for me to do. It's physically spending energy, but it's mentally and emotionally recovering energy, renewing my energy. What is up, you sexy bastards? It's your boy, Kid Drone, a.k.a. Rabbi Kenlis, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. We're going big today. In today's episode, I'm talking to Tony Schwartz, the author of The Power of Full Engagement. This is one of my favorite books of all time. And this is an amazingly energizing episode that has a bunch of unconventional wisdom for you. He is also in charge of TheEnergyProject.com, where companies pay him a lot of money to help them optimize their employees' energy and productivity. So check it out if you're interested. If you've ever wanted to learn more about getting the most out of your days, you will love this episode. In this conversation, here's three major things. Number one, how to not feel guilty doing recharge time. For me, it's in the sauna. And number two, ghostwriting Trump's art of the deal and what he learned by doing it. And number three, the energy serenity prayer. This is an interesting one. You're going to enjoy those three things plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Enjoy. Before we jump into the conversation, are you subscribed to my email list? Go do it right now. Sendfox.com slash Noah. I put my best tips for marketing and business in a single short email and hook up exclusive content to my email subscribers. Sendfox.com slash Noah. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener JBAP from Canada, aka North North America. He said, not just for the unicorns. I love this podcast. Tons of interesting people from all backgrounds and all levels of success. Thank you so much, man. I love you and every other one of my listeners. If you want to shout out in a future episode, just leave a review on iTunes, Android, wherever the hell it is. I check every single one of them. Your book is one of the five books that changed my life. And I think one of the, the number one things that it shifted my thinking entirely, and most books don't, right? I think, you think most books after a month, you kind of go back to normal. Just like, let's think about our energy levels and not the time allocation. I thought that was just uh, fundamentally amazing. And so I'm so excited to be able to meet you and, and share your story with, uh, with the audience. Yeah, great. Well, I think what I was curious for you is like, what are you believing in so much? And then how is your business shifting? So what I believe in is that human beings can grow and that you can grow as an adult. And growing to me is about widening, deepening, and lengthening your perspective wider, deeper, longer. And it's about being able to both regulate your emotions, which is especially hard in this time, but also to stay engaged, not to push them away as a way of regulating them, but to accept and own all of them. And so those two things, I think, are transformative for leaders, transformative for the world, were people to move past their infinite number of blind spots and their confirmation bias, their inclination to look in the world for evidence for what they already believe, also to understand that they don't just have one self. And there are arguably are multiple selves that each of us have, some of which we're more aware of than others, without being, quote, multiple personalities. In other words, even for a ordinary, normal, healthy person, you have multiple selves. And when you can understand and connect with each of those selves, and I'm happy to talk about them, you're in a position to have much more influence how you show up in the world, because you can't change what you don't notice. I guess one thing with that specifically, 
is that how do you know where to grow? What does growth really mean? So what <laughs> growth means is seeing more. That's the nature of growth. When you think about childhood development, about which there's a vast literature and Piaget has laid out the ways in which we grow cognitively over a period of time. And there's a huge amount of knowledge about how people grow from 1 to 18 or 1 to 20. And the way they grow is that they see more than they did previously. So a 10-year-old sees more than a 5-year-old, can manage more complex problems, can entertain more variables, can take other points of view. And a 15-year-old is able to see more than a 10-year-old. But you hit 20 or 21 or 18, and the growth, the natural growth that is taking place, the natural development that is taking place at a rapid pace up until then slows dramatically, and you no longer grow or see more automatically. In fact, just the opposite seems to happen. That's where I was talking about confirmation bias, is you grow into a set of beliefs you identify a self that you want to be, and then you spend basically the rest of your life sticking to it. Meanwhile, we're in a world which is changing so rapidly and where the complexity of the problems we're facing is running so far out ahead of the complexity of thinking required to solve those problems and the emotional self-regulation to stay cool under pressure that we find ourselves in the very situation we do. We don't know what to do. I mean, just think about this as one example. You've got the economy closed down and you've got people still getting sick. And those two forces are somewhat at odds with one another or dramatically at odds with one another. So you open the economy, you increase the amount of illness. You keep people quarantined you decrease the capacity of people to earn a living and to have all the things that go along with that, including some reasonable level of security. A person who embraces complexity is someone who says, I'm not going to try and choose up sides between those two. I'm going to try to learn how to dynamically balance them and take them both into account. That's a whole way of thinking that runs counter to the primarily binary worldview that most people have. So think about this. If you are strong, you consider the only alternatives to strength is weakness. That's a binary view. But if you are honest, you think the only alternative to honesty is dishonesty. So you're going to choose honesty. But what is honesty when it's overused? Honesty overused is cruelty. So actually, any strength overused becomes a liability. So we have this binary notion that we should choose up sides around a series of virtues. We do so at our peril because when we double down on them, when we try to use them to solve a problem that's feeling overwhelming, they end up getting in our way. So courage becomes recklessness. Confidence becomes arrogance. You know, think of any quality. I love it. And then I'm confused at the same time. What does this mean to the person who lost their job and they're at home right now and they're, they're not feeling good about themselves? Yeah, I mean, look, Maslow talked about the hierarchy of needs. And right now, 20 million or 40 million or 100 million Americans are at the bottom of the hierarchy of needs, meaning the thing that's most important to them is to eat, is to keep the roof over their head, 
is to somehow make it through what appears to be, you know, survival issues that are up. And what happens to us in that circumstance is that we default into a more primitive system, the fight or flight system. We default into becoming preoccupied with our survival. But when we do that, think about this, and I'm sure this is not a big surprise, but, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, we were designed in the face of a predator, of a danger, to fight or to run like hell. Those are the two options. And the way that works physiologically or neurochemically is that your prefrontal cortex, your thinking mind, shuts down progressively as you move into that fight or flight state. Why does it shut down? So it doesn't get in your way. So it doesn't force you to think, oh my God, there's a lion coming at me. How much longer can I listen to Tony? (laughs) That's not very adaptive. So what you want to do is you want to have the fewest interferences and the most automatic behavior. But the problem is when there's a complex challenge that you're trying to solve, as opposed to getting away from a predator, having your prefrontal cortex shut down is not a help. I didn't fully understand the part where too much courage is recklessness. And then, you know, I am really curious your suggestions or recommendations for the people that are feeling anxious or the people that are feeling helpless. I can talk about that in a whole chunk, but let me go back and see if I can give you some a way of more easily absorbing the whole notion of strengths and overused strengths. So the problem, Noah, is that we live in a world that has become very complex. There aren't really simple answers to almost any important problem. In fact, there aren't certainties. We've lost our certainty and we have a huge hunger for it. It makes us feel more secure. Here's one of the ways that hunger for certainty plays out. You choose up sides on behalf of certain virtues at the expense of others. So, for example, you say honesty, that's a virtue, or candor, call it candor, that's a virtue. And the immediate assumption is, of course, it's a virtue. But what happens when you overuse candor? What happens is you become cruel. You can be insensitive to the other person in the name of candor. So the balancing quality is care or empathy, but it's not choosing upside. So that's a positive opposite as opposed to the negative opposite, which would be dishonesty. So if you have candor and you want to avoid overusing it, you need to have it blended with care or compassion. And you want to move freely and flexibly in any given situation between honesty or candor, candor and care. Now, that turns out to be a principle that can be applied to any quality in your life. So what I'm saying is that when you choose up sides on behalf of a quality, I choose up for men. Men tend to choose up the quality of strength over tenderness, for example. But strength, needs to be balanced by vulnerability. Otherwise, it becomes oppressiveness. It becomes authoritarianism. Too much strength is overwhelming. So you also need vulnerability. Or here's another very simple one that all of us feel. We all want to be confident. We all want to be secure. But if you're too confident, it comes off as arrogance. It's off-putting to people. It actually makes people not want to trust you as opposed to want to trust you. The balancing opposite to confidence is humility. 
again, the rhythmic movement between confidence and humility is a more complex worldview. It gives you more space to operate by not choosing up sides. I liked your point with that. I think one thing I've been reflecting on myself is that I have this rhino style where I'm just bull through the parallel that is the havoc that I've left behind. And I've been really just kind of sitting with that in the sense of the rhino actually is, has some advantages, but then the havoc is helpful in other ways. So it, it's not that I should just always create havoc for others, but figure out on the spectrum at different times how to embrace both of those. Are you suggesting that people with like helplessness or anxiety is actually a helpful thing potentially, and then they need to balance that with some types of action or you know the, the opposite no, of help? No, I'm not actually suggesting that helplessness, for example, which is something a lot of us are feeling, is a valuable quality to have. Helplessness is the opposite of agency and control. And there's a lot to be said for having a sense of, you know, autonomy and agency. But when you overuse that, what happens is, again, as when you overuse anything, that authority or agency ends up being oppressive to other people, or it makes you rigid in the way that you respond. So what you're actually looking for, and I wish we could do this with a visual because it would make it so much easier for you and therefore for your listeners. You do this, Noah, and I'm going to ask your listeners to do it. Draw a quadrant. So four quadrants. Yep. Put a vertical line and a horizontal line, and now you've got four quadrants. The upper right quadrant is the strength. So let's use confidence. Now, if you overuse confidence in the upper left, you get arrogance. The reason in part that you do overuse confidence is you want to disown and get as far away as you can from insecurity. That's in the lower left. That's the negative opposite of confidence. But the solution to this, which is not readily apparent to people who see the world through a binary lens, this or that, good or bad, right or wrong, the balancing positive opposite is humility. And it's not that you are virtuous because you are confident or that you're virtuous because you're humble. It's you're virtuous because you have the ability to hold these opposites and move between them in a flexible and appropriate way. Any quality that you put in, the upper right, you can play out this story. Now, here's the final piece of the puzzle, which is fascinating. So the lower left is insecurity. The problem, the reason people don't embrace humility is they confuse it with the lower left. They confuse the lower right with the lower left. They confuse humility with insecurity. And so it's precisely what they're trying to push away that when you tell them, hey, a little humility would be valuable here, they read it as a dangerous thing to do because insecurity to the confident person feels threatening. And how do you think this is relevant today? Well, I think it couldn't be more relevant because if you look at whether it's the top of our government or you look at corporate leaders, people in positions of influence, we have a massive instinct to choose up sides and to overuse strength. So in other words, what I'm saying is that the problems of our society can be attributed in large part to people overusing their strengths 
and undervaluing the positive opposites of those strengths. How do you think people can uh, explore that? With little experiments. So let's say for you, let's go back to your situation. Yeah, I think my inner rhino, as I call it, can just go and just heads down. And I think that can also on the other side of that create havoc and pain or frustration for people that interact with me potentially. And so I was really trying to explore and sit with like the havoc is bad, but maybe I don't have to feel so guilty about it. And maybe there's some benefits of that. You are a force of nature moving forward. And that has actually been a key element of your success. But when you overuse that quality, it creates havoc. So what's the balancing opposite? The balancing opposite, and I'm just thinking about this off the top of my head, but it's something about slowing down, stepping back, considering, reflecting. It's the opposite of action. The Energy Project and our work over the years, all the way back to the Powerful Engagement, my first book about this work, really was grounded in one idea, which is more, bigger, faster, which is the sort of mantra of free market capitalism, overused, becomes a liability. So more, bigger, faster needs to be balanced by less, smaller, slower. That's your positive opposite. That's where you need to build your strength, build your capacity. And the problem is that someone like you, and the reason I know this is because I'm like you, I built the energy project to solve my own problems. I am a barrel. I'm a guy who wants to get things done. And the problem for people like us is that less, smaller, slower for us feels like failure. It feels like a way that we won't accomplish what we want to. So we confuse that positive set of qualities with a negative quality and we won't go near it. So every time you start to do it, you say to yourself what you said to me, and I think you said it honestly and authentically, that you realize that when you do this, it sometimes causes havoc, sometimes creates chaos. What you need to do is to build little experiments with testing your assumption that smaller, slower, will lead to failure. You've got to build a little experiment that might be something like this, that, again, I'm going to go back to the principle that the Energy Project was launched on and the powerful engagement described, which was that more, bigger, faster is half the story, but that what we really want to do, and we learned this from professional athletes who would come to us when their performance had broken down, And then we would interpret it through the lens of energy or capacity, how well they were filling the key reservoirs of their life. What we learned is that the best athletes were not the people who pushed the hardest. They were the people who were best at managing work-rest ratios. So work in the upper or hard work in the upper right quadrant, if you've still got your quadrants in front of you, overwork in the upper left quadrant, and then renewal in the bottom right quadrant. The problem is that renewal gets mixed up for the hard worker with laziness and slacking and, again, failure. So you don't recognize because if you're looking at this through a binary lens, you say to yourself, well, look, either I work hard or I am lazy and I fail. But no, 
The great athlete understands that investing as much energy in the renewal and recovery of energy as you do in the expenditure of energy is actually the key to sustainable high performance. And I suspect that's part of what you appreciated in the powerful engagement. I've read the book multiple, multiple times, and I always write a book report on books that I love. And I was rereading my book report notes, and I bold different things that stick out to me. And I have it open over here. And one of the key things I bolded, like the first thing I bolded that I looked at is, and this is the quote from the book, sleeping is the most important source of recovery in our lives, exclamation point. I think that really got me thinking about sleep, you know, how critical it is, and then adding in recharging. And I'll tell you, this is actually interesting. I never thought about it. I have a guilt with recharging. Like on Wednesdays, now we're stuck at home, but normally every Wednesday I go to the sauna from four to six, and every Friday I go get a Chinese massage. And I'm embarrassed to tell the people I work with because I help run a company and I don't want them to be thinking Noah's being lazy. Noah's not working. And I have realized though that those times have brought a lot of creativity to my mind. And I think you've even said it in your book. You said most innovation, most ideas don't come at work. But uh, yeah, I never really thought like I definitely feel guilty about like, oh, I'm not working and they're stuck and doing this stuff. You know, in retrospect, I also do get recharged and I do get a lot of creativity out of that. So go back to the quadrants because I think it helps you to see it then. So you see hard work in the upright, overwork when you do too much of it. So the fear is if I don't do hard work, I'm lazy. But actually, renewal, rest, even sleep is refueling the system. You know, you wouldn't think of taking money out of the bank continuously and indefinitely without putting money back in. And if you did, you'd go bankrupt. That's what we do to ourselves physically and emotionally. We withdraw from our accounts all the time without putting back into them. It's more complex than work hard. It's more complex than find time to renew. They're equally critical and they seem to be opposite, but they're not. They're complementary. How do you recommend people renew and recharge? By doing the things that make them feel good. (laughs) You know, there's not a math answer here or a physics answer. So what refuels your system? So, for example, you know, an obvious one, if you've got a racing mind or you're very physically tense, is some form of breathing or meditation, because that will slow down the system, slow down your system what they call downregulate your system. And you want to downregulate your system because when you do that, the prefrontal cortex steps back in and it's much more capable of managing difficult situations than this amygdala and hypothalamic pituitary axis where we go nutty and we create chaos like you were describing earlier or upset in the world. Well, I guess for you, how do you recharge? What recharges you? First of all, I really do want to repeat that I started the energy project because I was a workaholic. I just was addicted to it. What is an addiction? Well, it's when you do something compulsively, meaning you don't make a deliberate choice. And I was one day talking to my then partner in this business. It was not called the Energy Project then, but it was an earlier version of it. I'm on the phone in my car talking to him at the end of a long day. It's like nine o'clock and I'm in the driveway. The reason I'm there is I don't want to go inside and then have my wife and children feel I'm not available. So I'll stay outside talking on my cell phone until I finish. 
I can't quite hear him because these are the days, I'm going back 20 years, these are the days when cell phones were a little bit more, you know. So I get out of the car and I'm hyped up. You know, it's been a long day. It's been an intense day. We're having an intense discussion about whatever is next. I step out of the car and start talking to him. I kind of turn away like this. And I notice I forgot to put the car in park. So now the car is rolling down my lawn, headed toward a wall in our garden. And I'm now chasing after my car. And I get to it and I am able to push the emergency brake like four inches before it smashes into this wall. And I realize, okay, Tony, you've hit a wall. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> And that really was a life-changing moment. So you asked me the question, what do I do to renew? Well, I've always been better at active renewal than passive renewal. So passive renewal is breathing or taking a walk in nature, a gentle walk in nature, or listening to a song that you find soothing, one of those kinds of things. I do better raising my heart rate. Now, when you raise your heart rate, you downregulate the system at the end of the period that your heart rate is raised. You know, you get this experience and you look like you work out. So I'm sure you know that feeling after a workout of being more relaxed than you were before the workout, particularly if you go in, like when you go into the sauna, if you were to measure your activation at the beginning of that session in the end, I bet it would be way lower. Now, by the way, that's a passive form of renewal. Great one, but that's a passive form of renewal. So for me, tennis is an incredibly relaxing thing for me to do. It's physically spending energy, but it's mentally and emotionally recovering energy, renewing my energy. I'm also a ballroom dancer. A couple, about 10 years ago, my daughter said to me, you know, dad, and she works with me, dad, you know, like you say all these things, but you don't really have any hobbies. Yeah, you play tennis, but that's about it. And I said, all right, you're right. I don't have a regular enough set of activities that are renewing. And I had been a ballroom dancer in college and then given it up when I became a dad. And so I went back to it. Again, enormously renewing for me. What do the two of those have in common? They take you out of your head and into your body. So part of recovery, part of renewal is simply shifting channels. So I'm sitting here now and you're sitting there. The best form of renewal you could get after we get off this call is to stand up and walk, go outside. Whereas if you are a construction worker, the best form of renewal is come into a bar, don't have too many drinks because that's a dangerous form of renewal, but you know, have a drink, kick back, talk to your friends and so on. So those are my two big forms, that and reading. I just love reading. And when I say reading, I mean, I'll read anything. I'll read the label on a can. But what really works for me is to throw myself into an absorbing narrative, fiction or nonfiction. I was outside sitting on my patio yesterday, and I had a similar thought to you, and I want to hear how you're exploring it. I feel like this is one of the most creative periods of my life. I feel sad for the people getting sick, and I hope no one else gets sick. As well, I'm just like, wow, I don't know. You know, like these artists, you read about Poe and some of these people who are depressed and and the creativity comes out or some limitation. And so it sounded like that's something that you felt like you're at a, a highly creative point. I feel like there's some paths that people are can choose to take. You know, I've been called a little bit. I feel called to take. Can you tell me more about that for you? Yeah. Look, 
here's a principle of change. People don't change because they have an honorable vision of the future. I mean, they may want to change because they think it would be good for them. But most commonly, people change because being the way they are eventually becomes more painful than the pain of actually changing. So I think what happens in a circumstance like this, it's variable. Some people collapse. Some people have so few resources, including financial resources, that they simply can't cope. But for people who have the luxury, the privilege of not having to be singularly preoccupied with their survival right now, but for you to run your business requires something different. It requires you to think in a different way. Certainly requires that I do. I mean, we were doing all our work in person. So we had no business, just like all the other people who had no business when they're dependent on people being with you. So I think that if you have some reserves, if you have some resilience, the pressure of looking at the world a different way, the sort of no excuse if you don't piece of that puzzle can be very energizing and certainly is for me. I think, Noah, another critical part, and I'll bet this is part of why you're energized, another critical part of this is the feeling that what you do matters, the feeling that you're serving something larger than yourself. Finally, yeah. Yeah, so I feel that. Like All our work is about helping people deal with very high pressure and complexity. What could be better right now? In some way, I've been training all my life for this. You know, when Sully Sullenberger, the pilot, on the last day of his career, took off from LaGuardia Airport, this is the guy who had to land the plane in the Hudson River, he takes off in his plane, the two engines catch on fire because pigeons or some other bird gets in them, and he's now out over the Hudson River, 10 minutes from LaGuardia Airport, he can't get back, he doesn't have time. And he realizes he's going to have to land the plane in the Hudson River. And later, when he's asked about it, he does it, and nobody gets hurt. It's amazing. They say, you know, like, how did you do that? And he said, you know what? I was training all my life for that moment. I've been training all my life for this moment. I've been training, and it's like, now people are going to be willing to listen because they're in pain. They're struggling in a way that, you know, when the economy is booming and the things you're doing are, quote, working or at least working reasonably well, you're not going to challenge your beliefs and your assumptions. You're going to just stick with them. If you don't challenge your beliefs and your assumptions right now, you're in trouble. Yeah, completely agree. What it sounded like was that change happens from forced functions or maybe self-recognition that you're at a plateau. You guys felt that in your business. How did you guys shift? Well, a couple of ways, some more complex than others. The simplest way is that we were already, I would say, somewhat late in recognizing that the world was moving from in-person teaching, learning, training to online and virtual forms. And so our clients, you know, mostly big companies, were asking for that significantly in advance of when we were able to provide. So we've been working for the last two years to build up this online and virtual platform. And we, fortunately, we were pretty far down that road when the COVID crisis really took off. And suddenly, 
the core of our business was gutted and we had to be able to deliver another way that didn't require being in person if we were going to survive. So one of the ways that we have adapted is to accelerate that process dramatically. And again, under pressure, I'm thinking back to the years I was a newspaper journalist, I was a reporter. And, you know, you get to the end of the day and you have spent the day at that point, there was no internet when I was first doing this, you know, spent the day getting your story together and now you're writing it. And there would come times when, you know, it was really tight and there's that empty space in the paper and you've got nine minutes. And there's nothing like the prospect of a hanging to concentrate a man's mind. So that's a skill that I developed, which was to be able to super focus when the chips were down, you know, when it was tough. What I've noticed is that my all the people who were, I work with have been able to mobilize, influenced by their sense of purpose and meaning, they've been able to mobilize their energy and we have accomplished so much more than we did. So that's one thing. The second thing, which is the more complex piece of this, has been the evolution of what's the obvious question to ask when people are in crisis? It's how do you help people out of crisis? So we're usually not dealing with people who are in crisis. We're dealing with people who are feeling high demand pressure, but it's not crisis. This is crisis. What we really have evolved over the last couple of months is a way of understanding what happens to people when they start to feel uncertain, fearful, overwhelmed. The big thing that's happening for people right now is emotional. It's how does this make them feel? And then as a consequence of how they feel, how do they react or respond? This is where we really have been able to hone in on this notion that I started out talking about, which was that there's more than one self. So the self that comes rising up in this kind of circumstance is the survival self. It's the one that just wants to figure out how to deal with whatever the pain is in this moment and consequences be damned. Like, I'm not going to think about the future. I'm hungry right now. That survival self, which I talked about earlier, is not capable of making rational, thoughtful, reflective choices. It's very reactive, it's very impulsive, and it tends to be so focused on immediate gratification that it doesn't take account of the consequences of its actions. Where does that survival self come from? That survival self is defending something. That's what you do in survival. You're defending something. So who are you defending? Well, it turns out that who you're defending is a second self. That self is what we call the overwhelmed self. It's the youngest, most helpless part of you. It's the part of you that cannot solve a problem when you have it. And the survival self jumps in to try to run the show in that circumstance, and it makes a mess of it. That's what you're talking about when you say, I move from being focused and pushing to creating chaos. That's the survival self that has started to jump in there. So what's the actual solution to having the survival self run the show under those circumstances? That's sort of like super obvious, but it's the adult. It's the grown-up. It's the part of you that is capable of making the best, most reflective, calmest choices. But that gets run out of it 
that adult gets run off by the survival cell who's screaming, let me handle this, let me handle this. So now if you think of this, you realize that, and this is the answer to a question you've asked me a couple of times, which is how do you cope in this circumstance? The answer is you get the right self in charge. Mm. So first of all, you've got to recognize that there's a part of you that's feeling helpless. And there's nothing more traumatizing to a human being than feeling helpless. Nothing more traumatizing, particularly for a child, because if you're an adult, you know, you may be moving in and out of the feeling of helplessness, but a child who can't get its needs met, who's not getting fed or is tired, that child feels like its life is literally in danger. So first, the ability, and this is really hard for people, you have to really work at it, to notice there's a part of you that does feel helpless. We don't want to feel that self because it's too threatening. The trick is to recognize that that self is one of yourselves, but it's not all of them. It's not all of you. It's simply a part of you. And when you can create a little bit of distance from it, Noah, then you're in a position to do something that the survival self can't, which is soothe the overwhelmed self. Soothe that self, because as soon as you can quiet it, as soon as you can downregulate it, you're gaining access to more of the adult. and the adult can make really good choices, but not when it's activated, not when the survival self gets activated. So the adult, the child, and the survival self, those are the three selves that are operating right now. Too many people are living in the overwhelmed self and the survival self. Too few are have a way, a systematic way of accessing the adult. And what is that systematic way? The first one is quiet physiology quiet the physiology. Maybe you do it by raising your heart rate because that helps you emotionally and lets you burn off stress. Maybe you do it through meditation. Maybe you go into a sauna. Maybe you get a Chinese massage. All of these are designed to downregulate your system. The reason you go and do them in spite of the fact that you worry you're not being productive when you do them is that some part of you and it's in your body recognizes that this actually serves you well. You said something on Twitter about how should people approach helplessness and anxiety, and and I'm just going to summarize it as well because I think it's it's a really good point, and and I think what you did is provide the context. I saw the tweet and I was like, oh, that's good, but this context really clarifies it. But you said number one, sleep more, ideally eight plus hours. Two, breathe in three, out six, one minute at a time. And I've noticed in these past few days, I'm really breathing more. And I think for me, it's like, okay, just go in it. And uh, the third one was exercise or move twenty minutes to to discharge stress and. I think it's, yeah, we can stay in these tents. I know I can, I, it's a tenseness that I have to like release. And then I could start thinking about the best approaches to these different problems. One of the things you said in your book as well, similar to this is stress does build strength. So there are times where, uh, as you said as well, like it expands our capacity. I think where I'm curious, especially now more than ever, is how do you know where to get that stress? And which type of stress is helpful stress and which type of stress is, is actually counterproductive? I don't think any stress is intrinsically bad stress. It's just demand. And the real key is how much of a reservoir do you have? That's why resilience is about the size of the reservoir you can draw on under pressure. So I think you don't need to look for stress right now. And you oughtn't to look for stress right now. But we do know, and you, I'm sure, know this from the powerful engagement, but that you know, if you take all stress away, what do you get? You get atrophy. 
Too much stress leads to breakdown. Too little stress leads to atrophy. We're back to the balanced relationship between stress and recovery. See, it all fits together. So the most important thing in being able to manage this stress right now is to build your resilience reservoir, is to have resources that you can draw on and activities, renewal and rest activities that you can intersperse with hard work that allow you to draw on those resources when you're under pressure. Because as long as you can draw on them, you're not going to fall into survival. Survival isn't the issue if you have enough resources in the tank. How do you know what to get fully engaged with? You know, what's maximizing your energy these days? Because I think that's something that I've been wondering for years, only recently, and I think you said it, it's about purpose and this feels like something I can, matters. But, you know, how do people find that thing to get fully engaged with? And for you, what's been maximizing? I think the three components of finding activities in your life that engage and energize and excite you. So I think the first one is you just plain like doing it. This is aside from whether you're good at it or not good at it. You know, I have some things I'm really good at, and I have some other things that I'm not particularly good at, but I still love doing. It's like literally on a piece of paper, we go back to a piece of paper or to a a Word document, and you're going to make three columns. So the first one is what I love to do. The second column is what I'm good at doing. For the most part, you're going to enjoy it more if you're good at it. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be immediately good at it. You don't have to be good at an activity on day one. In fact, if it's going to be a absorbing activity, you can't be good on day one because then there's no growth in it. You sense some areas where you are more naturally inclined. You know, you put me in front of technology, I'm going to freeze up. Put me in front of a screen to write, I'm going to be energized. So the second one is you've got some talent there. And then the third one is purpose. How is this activity, if you look at the two first columns, How are these activities actually aligned with something that I feel, not that the world tells you, but that you, yourself, Noah, feel is important, that it matters? Because from an energy perspective, there's no greater source of energy than the energy of purpose, than the energy of meaning. Because when you feel something really matters, there is no question you generate more energy. In fact, it's another classic overuse one. What nurses and doctors are drawing on right now in 15-hour, seven-day-a-week jobs watching people die is they're drawing on a sense of purpose. The purpose is I'm a healer. The purpose is this is what I was meant to do. And that is an enormous source of energy. The problem is if you're not taking care of the other three dimensions of energy, physical energy, the quantity of your energy, so what are you doing to, you know, in sleep and in nutrition, eating and physical exercise or movement? What are you doing to take care of your physical self, emotional, which is you need to feel a certain way. The way you need to feel is the way you feel when you're at your best. And if I ask your listeners to think about how they feel at their best, they're all going to say the same adjectives, excited, in the flow, engaged, positive, optimistic, and all of these high positive adjectives. The problem is that a lot of the time we're not feeling those feelings. And so you got to be focused on what's the consequence when you're not in that state. 
and what can you do about it? And then that takes us back to renewal. You can refuel the system is the simple answer. But if you go back to the nurses and doctors, the problem is that you can overvalue purpose or spirit as a source of energy and undervalue the other ones that make it possible for you to show up at your best. Mm. So one of the movements for all human beings has to be between caring for others or serving others and caring for yourself, not choosing one at the expense of the other. And the risk we have right now with these frontline healthcare workers and all the people who are on the front lines is that they burn themselves out. And not least, they make themselves more vulnerable to illness, including COVID-19. How do people find the areas of growth? And we talked about it a little bit, but I, I kind of want more, I don't know if it's a tactical approach or a mindset approach, or like, I think in the past for me, sometimes it's like, I'm feeling like I'm plateau and, and that is the sign that there's an area of growth. Is it more like a self-awareness thing? No, I don't have an absolute answer to that. Certainly not off the top of my head, but where my mind goes first is, this is an exercise we do with our clients, is start out making a list of your strengths. What are the things that are my signal strengths, the things I'm really good at? Persevering, I'm kind, I'm insightful. You know, you can imagine the full range of what those are. And then ask yourself, what is it like when I overuse that quality? When you're too honest, you are hurtful to people. When you're too compassionate, you give them a pass and you're not really telling them what they need to hear. What does it look like when you overuse a quality? Let's just see how you do with this. So give me another strength of yours. What would people say about you? I'd say persevere. Which fits into some of what you said before. You know, you're kind of like, you're going to stay at it. You're relentless. You're not going to give up. And one of the qualities that people like that tend not to have is acceptance, letting go. That persevering push till you drop model Beside the fact that it burns energy out, it's also one that doesn't allow you. I've been thinking a lot about the serenity prayer and specifically about our version of it, which we call the energy serenity prayer. So it's invest your energy in what you have the power to influence. Don't squander it on what you can't control and have the discernment to know the difference. So this idea that you are really making that distinction in every moment is so critical right now because it's so easy to shake your fist at things you cannot affect. And yet, for all of us, there are things we can affect. Most of what we've talked about today are things you can influence, you can get to. So I said, look for the overused strength. We're talking about how do you come to uh, clarity about what you want to work on, or what you want to improve, or how you want to grow. And then what would the balancing opposite be? What would the balancing opposite be? Because the balancing opposite is the growth zone. That's what you need to work on. And you need to work on it not only in terms of behavior, the sort of Aristotelian idea that you are what you repeatedly do, the idea of deliberate practice, that on. you get good at what you practice, absolutely true. But you also have to work on your mindset. You also have to you go back to that lower left quadrant that I've been talking about, that part that you want to disown, that you think will lead you to failure. So that bottom right quality that you've identified as the positive opposite 
is the one you're afraid is going to cause you to fail. So now what you have to do is you have to build a little experiment. So for example, for you, you're already doing a couple of really good things when you go off to the Chinese massage and to the sauna, but those are really great. But you also have to work with your mindset and your mindset is still saying to you, and I know this because you told me this, your mindset is still, yeah, but other people are going to think I'm slack. One of the things that was most powerful to me as a person who worked too much, one of the things that I did when I was starting out as a book writer is that I sat down at this desk, this very desk, and I stayed here all day long, basically wouldn't let myself get up. Maybe I'd go and get something to eat once during the day. And the reason was that I knew that if I left, I couldn't get myself back. Writing's hard. So I'd stay with it. But the problem is you can't work, work, work without having a diminution in your energy and your focus. So what would happen is I'd look for ways to avoid it. I'd start answering email. I'd take this and I'd start rearranging these pens. You know, I'd think of somebody I could call. I'd do a million things to avoid it. And I'd end up spending 12 hours sitting here or 10 hours sitting here in front of this computer, but only two of them were probably, or three, productive, really productive. What did I do? I shifted to understanding the way balance and my body work which is the human body is designed to work in 90-minute segments. We sleep in 90-minute segments at night, and during the day, we move between, and we're both getting there, high energy at the beginning of the 90 minutes, and then progressively lower energy as we get into it. At 90 minutes, for most people in most circumstances, the body is screaming at you, give me a break, but we override. I decided not to override it. When I was doing this full-time uh, writing, I could do it in a wholly different way than I can today when it's just a limited period of time I can write. But I basically wrote in 90, I still to this day write in 90-minute sprints. Okay. I am 100% engaged. I have everything turned off and I just do the work for 90 minutes. I hit 90 minutes and I stop. I don't wait till 95 minutes or 100 minutes, even if I'm on a roll, because you will pay for it later. And when I stop, I go down and I have breakfast, or I take a run, or I read something that is unrelated to what I'm working on. And I'm basically making waves all day long. When I'm on, I'm really on. And when I'm off, I'm really recovering. That's holding the complementary opposites. And the net of it is much higher productivity. So before, I would do those 10-hour days. It would take me a year or more to write a book. Once I started using this new method and I limited myself to three 90-minute writing sessions, so four and a half hours total, I wrote the books in half the time. You can get, when you manage your energy skillfully, more done in less time at a higher level of focus in a more sustainable way. That's a good promise. So one thing I just wanted to highlight on that is that I had a realization, a simple one, but I looked at my weeks in the past and looked at the weeks in the future and I was trying to recognize like what makes my day epic, what increases my energy level and it's this. And I think I used to feel guilty as well for that where I'm like, oh, I'm just interviewing and sharing people's stories and helping others that, you know, help myself and help others at the same time. And I was like, man, that, that fucking fires me up and I need to go more into that. Well, yeah, because you're growing. 
you know, we're designed to grow, we're designed to learn, we're designed to get better. You know, there are a lot of forces that keep us from doing it. But yeah, why wouldn't you feel exhilarated by the fact that you come out of each of these conversations with resources and knowledge that you didn't have before? And also, I think, you know, like you're a very, you're a related kind of guy. So you're also having a good connection with the person, talking about something that's meaningful to you and meaningful to them. I actually saw this video or I saw a blog post and it was like, someone blah, 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 that wrote Art of the Deal hated Trump and or regrets it. And I skipped it. I don't care to read it. And then I looked at it earlier today. It was you. And I was like, that's no way possible. The two questions I kind of have, or two things I just want to understand better is you wrote Art of the Deal, which you say is your greatest regret. But for me, regardless if it was Trump or not, there was a lot of good takeaways from the book. So I appreciate that. I appreciated it from that perspective. But I guess the two things I'm, I'm curious about is that you seem really angry at Trump and mad. And I guess I was just wondering, is like, is that the best use of your energy? And then as well, like, do you think people are listening or maybe they're listening to you now? It's funny that you ask me, is it the best use of my energy? Because my daughter, who is works with me and is my partner in creating all this work, asked me the same exact thing two weeks ago. Is this your most adult self? Here's the complexity of it. I just finished a book. It's going to be on Audible. But I just finished a book that's called Dealing with the Devil, My Mother, Trump, and Me. So you can imagine it's a complex set of uh, variables in that book, three devils. It's humbling to me to hear you say this. To the degree that I'm just coming off angry, I don't think that's a good use of my time. Or to the degree that I tweet something when I'm angry, I don't think it's a good use of my time. And by the way, look at my feed, my Twitter feed, and you'll see that for the last two weeks, I haven't done it. I took my daughter's admonition pretty seriously, but for four years, I've been doing it. So on the one side, I would say, look, it's much better to be focusing one's attention on things that add value in the world than on railing about things that are not good. Having said that, Noah, Trump is a unique figure in history, and he is the most dangerous man alive. He's a psychopath. I've really been studying this carefully over the last couple of months, trying to understand why, because mostly the way people talk about Trump negatively is that he's a narcissistic, that he's only concerned with people telling him how great he is and telling you himself how great he is. That's not the big issue. 1% of the population, 1% are psychopaths. There are three qualities that define a psychopath. Number one, the need to dominate, the need to have absolute control over anybody they interact with. That's the only psychopathology that I know where that's a central quality. The second one is lack of empathy, the inability to care about others. And the third, which is far and away the most dangerous, is lack of conscience. Trump has no conscience. So imagine that you know you went out to play a tennis match. And the guy on the other side of the court decided to call every ball you hit in out. When he announced the score, he changed the score. And when you won the set, he said, no, I won the set. The reason that I have felt compelled, this is the healthier part of this. It's complicated. The reason I felt compelled to speak out about Trump is because I believe people do not understand to this day how dangerous he is. And the way Trump operates is he's a battering ram. So he keeps pushing the envelope. He keeps trying to dominate. He keeps trying to make things his way with no rules, 
no brakes. He's a car without brakes because there's no shame. There's no guilt. And so he just plays by his rules, like a, that guy on the other side of the tennis court I'm talking about. What will he do if he's reelected? I believe he's fully capable of rounding up his enemies, putting them in gulags or having them murdered. I believe he is capable of setting off a nuclear bomb if he feels sufficiently humiliated by one of the other autocrats who has access to nuclear weapons. I think the future of civilization, and I said this starting in 2016, is at risk with this man in charge. The future of the civilized world is at risk. And I think it's at vastly higher risk if he gets reelected, because that will truly give him the feeling that he can get away with it. You choose and I choose to do things or not do things in part, hopefully in significant part, because we think they're the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. Trump doesn't do that. Trump's only way of measuring what he does is to ask the question, can I get away with it? And when the answer is no, nothing will stop. Look, I feel like Paul Revere, even to this day, you know, the British are coming, the British are coming. Listen, listen. I get that many people who are listening may decide, oh, I like that other stuff he said, but I don't like this. It's part of it. And it's another example of complexity, of the fact that you rightfully asked me the question, are you using your energy in the best possible way, railing about Trump? And the answer is, it's complex. <laughs> there are some reasons to do it that are rational and make sense and are you know positive in the world. And there's an anger that is largely an anger at myself. Because I knew when I was 32 years old, and I agreed to do that book in 1986, exactly who Trump was. I knew this is the person he was, and I did it anyway. I help and work with a lot of small businesses and entrepreneurs and hustlers. A lot of it is control. From hearing you, what it sounds like is you feel that you can influence control that some people might say, let me think a little bit differently about this guy. I think one thing that I'd be curious to hear personally more about, is I think this is what the audience is wondering too, is like, what was it like to actually be around him on that inside? Because a lot of us are you know, spectators. Well, they'll be able to read the whole story in this book shortly. But the short answer is chilling. It's just one of the reasons that we don't recognize psychopaths is that 99% of the population is wired with a conscience, wired with the desire to connect and relate. Now, some of us are better at it than others, but the overwhelming majority of us live by a set of rules that we so take for granted that it's like being a fish in water. You're not in the regular you know, think there's water around you. That's just your environment. So the experience of being with Trump was, it was like staring into a black hole day in and day out. That no matter how much he dominated, no matter how much control he exercised, no matter how much money he accumulated, no matter how much press he got, no matter how many successes he could talk about, he was empty in a moment. Because there was nothing inside. It's like you go to try to fix a car and you look inside and you discover the problem's not that the brakes are broken. The problem is there are no brakes. There's nothing going on in there except some sort of relentless survival streak in which the story that he tells himself is, if I don't dominate, I die. If I'm not in total charge, I die. And I don't want to die. And so how is that to work with? 
the actual working process. And remember, he was a totally different guy then. He was a 37-year-old mid-level real estate developer in New York. In nobody's mind was he ever going to be more than that. The only thing that was likely to change was that he would be richer, which did presumably happen. But other than that, nobody thought, and I didn't think, that he was ever going to be a player in American life. So the experience of working with him was disconcerting because he lies. It's second nature to him. We know that he's told 12 or 13,000 lies publicly since he got elected. He sees people as expendable. They're like Kleenex. And you've seen it in his administration. If a person serves his interests, fine, and he'll tell you how great they are. The minute that they in any way come up against him, he's going to discard them. Trump, in a good mood, talking about himself, which is what's necessary for him to be in a good mood, is easy. He's easy. I mean, it's fine. But you're very aware Every person listening to this knows somebody who has some of these qualities in their life. You don't matter. You don't matter. And you know that when you're in a conversation with Donald Trump, it's about him, not you. Tony, that was, uh, it's very interesting. The whole conversation was, was amazing. And I think a lot of people are feeling anxiety. And I think it's saying go into that, but also figure out how we can get to that adult level and all you talked about. So thank you very much for sharing. And then the book is... Uh, with the Devil. My mother, Trump, and me. You said you read a lot. Is there any books that you're like, yo, these ones stuck out to me or these, this product label? Maybe it's like can of tuna. Any labels or books that you could, you'd recommend for me or the audience? Fiction or nonfiction? There's a great book by a guy named Anand Giridakis called Winners Take All. Basically a, a book about income inequality and how pernicious it is and how wealthy people try to rationalize by giving away only enough that it doesn't cause them any discomfort. I'm a big fan of, I'm just looking at this, I'm a big fan of Colson Whitehead's book, The Underground Railroad. It's a novel, absolutely brilliant, about the imagined actual Underground Railroad moving slaves up to the North in the Civil War and around the Civil War. My real interest is in psychology. I mean, that's where my real passion is in this book of mine that I wrote. This is not for the, it's really a psychological study of me. I had a very tough, difficult mother who was mentally ill. And, you know, a lot of my, the way in which I was drawn to Trump and the feelings I have about myself for having done it after is very connected to my experience growing up with my mother, which is why it's my mother, me and Trump, or my mother, Trump and me. Ronan Farrow's book, Catch or Kill or Catch and Kill. I'm fascinated, as you now know, by psychopaths. And Harvey Weinstein is undeniably another psychopath. I'm fascinated by people who have no conscience because my conscience has been such a huge player in my life for better and for worse. Yeah. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you love the episode. If you did, go check out Tony Schwartz at theenergyproject.com or buy his book. I highly recommend it, The Power of Full Engagement. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's work out together. And before you go, let me know what you thought of the episode by emailing podcast at okdork.com. But what you're really going to do is email me and say, hey, you should put this person on the show, which I won't. <laughs> also, remember to go check out my YouTube channel. It is fire, youtube.com slash okdork. The videos don't look great but the content is fire. YouTube.com slash okdork.
And a final special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com for doing what he does on these episodes. Thank you, man. And Mitchell and David of the Dork team. And a special shout out to Candice at appsumo.com this week. Just wanted to let you know you're super cool. Shout out support squad. What, what? Have a super day. Who's your favorite author? 